Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Censored. I'm Eva Vrednach, desperately searching for dirty bits in banned books. At 62 books, it's kind of getting a bit compulsive, isn't it? What else is a podcast for but an obsession? It's grand. This time, I'm examining The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn by Brian Moore. Published in 1955, it was banned straight away. Interestingly, the publishers took a chance and appealed the decision. Now, I know I don't often talk about the appeals process, But that's because it was rarely used and generally the appeals failed, just like this one did. But that does mean that this novel went through two readings by two different censorship boards and was found filthy each time. I hope this bodes well for its smut levels. Superficially, it doesn't seem like a bannable book. It's centred on Judith Hearn, a devoutly Catholic middle-aged spinster living in Belfast. She moves into a new boarding house, run by Mrs Madden, who lives there with her son Bernard and her brother James. The brother represents something a little glamorous. He's a returned Yank, an Irish emigrant who's come home after years in America. The novel shows us Judith's interior life, her hopes, dreams and past disappointments. Moore had been a professional writer for years, but this novel began his career as a literary writer. He spent most of his life abroad and wrote this one while he lived in Canada. Although born outside the state, in Belfast, he is defined as an Irish writer because he identified as such. Of course, his citizenship or nationality made very little difference to the censors who gleefully banned anyone and everyone. To discuss why The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn was banned, I've asked Dr Sinead Moynihan to join me. Sinead teaches in the University of Exeter and is co-investigator of Brian Moore at 100, a project marking the centenary of his birth, which is funded by the British Academy and the Leverhulme Trust. Hi Sinead, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Aoife. I'm delighted to uh, to be here to talk about Brian Moore. It's a very interesting book for me because I've never heard of him before. Uh, until I started this work on the podcast, I'd never come across him. So it's nice to meet these uh, new-to-me novelists. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say you're not alone, actually, because he, um, I mean, this is his centenary year. So that's one of the reasons why it's particularly nice to be speaking about him. He was born in 1921, but he spent most of his life outside Ireland. And he wrote 19 or 20 or possibly more novels in quite diverse genres. And I think when you when your body of work is so heterogeneous, it's hard for people to pigeonhole you. And it's also hard to take readers with you. You know, let's say you're a a fan of a particular writer and you read all their stuff because you come to expect the kind of novel that they write. He wasn't that kind of writer. He wrote a different novel every time. And so perhaps that's one of the reasons why he's not as well known as he should be. And we're going to talk about his genre stuff maybe later on as well. But first off, I do always choose a drink to accompany the book. And it's kind of a complicated task when the novel is exploring alcohol abuse like this one. And there is a lot of booze in it. There's pints in the pub. There's whiskey surreptitiously drunk in bedrooms. And my favourite incident where illicit gin is smuggled into a hospital. Um, but I think I will choose tea this time because a Jew that is living in a boarding house. And I've always found boarding houses really fascinating. They're just such an interesting marginal space in our residential geography. And the breakfast scenes in the boarding house are really, well, they're something else. They're really, really memorable, both the tension and the, the discomfort, the meanness of the food presented, which was just toast and everybody watching the uh, son of the house scoffing kippers or something like that. All of that, of course, is accompanied by tea because you have to have tea for breakfast. But what about you? Do you think there are other books that capture some of the novel's spirit? Um. I think tea is a good one, um, especially because there's that scene very early on in the novel where um, where Judith goes to borrow a hammer off her landlady and her landlady says, oh, come in and have some tea. So so it's, you know, the beginning of her time at this house, um, at this new house. She just moved into this Camden Street boarding house and she meets her landlady and it's quite convivial. She meets his son who she's not so keen on. But, it, you know, the, the taking of tea can be this quite convivial thing. But then, as you say, the, the, the meanness of the catering at breakfast is very striking and the kind of frugality with which Judith has to live her life. Um, and, you know, you get so you get this after breakfast, you know, she has she goes into town and she's kind of trying to pass her day in the cheapest way possible. And one of the ways of doing that is to go to the library and spend several hours in this space. And then she goes and has, I think, a, a milk and a cake of some sort and but she's then she's chastising herself for having spent this money and so she has a very frugal supper as a result and we do learn towards the end of the novel when she's admitted to the home the doctor actually says she's undernourished so there's this kind of there is a kind of firm link between um the meanness of the of the boarding house cuisine and the kind of frugality with which she's living her life and you know the impact that that's actually having on her on her health um, but I do think the drink I would probably choose, which is very much bound up with tea, which is why it's interesting, is sherry. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Because sherry is what she drinks when she goes round to the O'Neill's. So Judith goes and has Sunday afternoons with this quite uh, middle class Catholic professional family in Belfast. And um, tea is served at about four o'clock. So the tea comes in and with her tea, she's offered a sherry. And she always has two, but never more than two or so, she says. 
Um, and so it's the kind of social acceptability of that that's really interesting. You know, here's your cup of tea. Oh, and you'll have a sherry with that. Oh, and have another sherry. And then that's it. And then, of course, in a later scene, we see poor Judith with the five sherries at at, at, at the O'Neill's and no tea. Um, and by then things, you know, things have deteriorated. So sherry to me, I mean, probably still even, but although I'm sure that drinks companies are desperately trying to rebrand it, but it is associated with kind of women of a certain age, isn't it? And, and with the kind of gentility Sunday afternoon glass of sherry. And it's the way that that is deployed in the novel only t- for us to realize that two sherries, in fact, isn't enough. And, and you know, yeah. It's really interesting that we're talking about sherry and how drawing room and prim and proper it is. And yet this book was banned. For me, I would say chapter three was when I thought, oh, yeah, this definitely earned it a place on the blacklist because Mary, the living servant girl, is described as transformed by nudity. And this is the uh, dirty bit for all the lovely listeners out there. She wore only coarse black Lyle stockings and a pair of faded blue knickers. You know, for the censors of the 50s, that's definitely enough. But apart from saying the word knickers, what else about this scene do you think would have upset the censors? Well, it's the spectacle of um, this young woman, but and also that, that there's two men present, right, isn't there? Because so um, James Madden comes in upon this scene and he um, interrupts basically uh, Mary and Bernard. Um, and that's the point at which, and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, uh, James starts developing his own kind of desirable, desiring obsession for for Mary that becomes more of a plot line later on in the narrative. I mean, uh, rereading the novel, I was struck by how many allusions there are to quite shocking things, you know, things that the censors would not have liked. Because very early on, we're told in that, you know, again, very genteel, have a cup of tea with your landlady. The landlady starts telling a story about a brothel owner who has rocked up to the church (laughs) to try and uh, pay for a communion rail or some such. And the priest has sort of said, well, where did you get the money that's going to pay for this? And the woman um, actually responds, well, you know, did Jesus ever ask Mary Magdalene where she got the money for the uh, ointments that she used to anoint his feet or something along those lines? Um, So I thought, you know, early on, I think that, you know, that was more in a way almost flirting with being banned, Mm. especially because the way that um, the story is told, the landlady, first of all, doesn't tell us what the retort was. So the brothel owner's retort. And it's only Bernard says, oh, you're missing the whole point. What, you know, remember what she said back to the priest. And Judith says, at that point, we get the kind of interiority of Judith. She decided to discard Bernard's ending. It just wasn't suitable and ruined the whole point. And I really like the idea of more kind of possibly writing censorship into the novel, preempting almost um, the idea of, you know, how do you tell a story and what bits do you leave out if it's considered unsuitable? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it ruins the point, you know, if that point is a moral point. Um, so I, I was revisiting the novel. I was quite interested in those little um, mentions of banned books and ideas of stories being censored. And 
Yeah, that is a really good point. That is a very interesting, uncomfortable moment for Judith where she's on board with the story and then she's like, oh, I don't know. I'm quite, I don't really like that now. And she is offended because part, I mean, her main characterization is that she is very prim and proper and very restrained. And to contrast with Judith, really, I suppose, James Madden, the uh, brother of the owner of the boarding house, he also lives there. And he seems to be, I suppose, a character who's driven a lot more by those desires that he chooses not to restrain. And it was chapter eight, uh, which really, I think, is an extraordinary chapter. It's really remarkable and very deeply disturbing. And certainly if they had ignored the... um, prostitution and the slight nudity they would definitely have banned it for chapter eight wouldn't they yeah absolutely i mean basically yeah james madden assaults the sexually assaults this um maid uh one night and it's a very it is a very distressing scene and it's it's also going back to what you were just saying earlier on about kind of boarding houses and how interesting they are i agree with you especially because of the transient nature of them and the perhaps the vulnerability of women living in those kind of mixed quote unquote environments and in this in this particular case of course a working class woman a, a young woman who's come from the the countryside to work in this house and um who's desperate not to be sent back. So back to the countryside, desperate not to be sent back, ruined, quote unquote. Um, And so she doesn't really say anything about what's happened because she, of course, thinks she's going to be blamed. And yeah, that, that, you know, it's going to result in her losing her job and all the rest of it. So it's a, it's a very deeply disturbing scene. And it, it really does make you think about the, the space of the boarding house and how potentially, yeah, vulnerable a working class woman would have been in that that working class single woman would have been in that space. There was also wasn't there some brief reference that she had come from the nuns or been recommended by the nuns, I think. So there is a sort of a suggestion on the fringes of that, you know, those big institutions where young women and girls are living and then then channeled out of by the nuns, maybe into domestic service, you know, the various mother and baby homes or industrial schools or, you know, a lot of that. So there is even kind of a tiny hint of that as well, uh, which I thought was really interesting that, you know, he was able to bring that in, in the, you know, in the midst of this very small little boarding house scenario that he drew in aspects of other institutional life in Ireland at the time. Yeah. And as you, as I'm sure probably discuss, you know, he's, He's he's particularly critical of Catholic institutions. Um, so it's interesting, as you say, in that case, that he that even something that was uh, quite shrouded in, um, you know, wasn't as openly discussed then as perhaps now. But he does manage to work that hint, at least of, of that kind of past into her story. I suppose the danger, as always, and I am conscious of it quite a lot, when you read for sex, there is a danger, I suppose, that those aspects of of the novel can overshadow other transgressive content. Because James Madden is, you know, obviously with that assault, he's quite a, a, a vicious character in that sense. And those are obviously bannable. But I think Judith herself, as a character, is much more interesting that she's not just a prim and proper reserved uh, middle class lady. 
she seems to offer an even greater challenge to notions of respectability than James does, even though her behaviour is nothing like as as violent. For example, I suppose she does a lot of uh, praying and seeking consolation in prayer and in church. And in standard Catholic texts, that would be a morality tale, but Moore really does subvert that, doesn't he? He upends that whole concept. He does, yeah. And um, I think he, you know, he talked about this in interviews and stuff like that later on. And I think he felt um, that Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Joyce, and this idea of a, a young man losing his faith and, you know, that move towards apostasy and and all of that. I think he felt that that had just been done to perfection by Joyce and he didn't want to re, re-travel that road. Um, and indeed, I, an, a very early um, Brian Moore short story called a, a Vocation. Actually, it's possibly not as early as this novel, but, you know, 50s anyway, mid to late 50s, um, is very influenced by Portrait of the Artist as, as a young man. Um, so he, I think he felt that influence and he felt it as a burden you know the anxiety of influence and all of that so he talks in interviews about how he felt that had been done but that wouldn't it be interesting to think about the loss of faith of what he calls in these interviews a sodality lady you know so somebody who actually is devout who is a regular churchgoer who who hangs the sacred heart up in her bedroom first thing along with a picture of her aunt a picture of the sacred heart talks a lot you know about how the sacred heart is always with her, da, 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 da. And then gradually, you know, starts to question that faith. And it's it's actually devastatingly portrayed in the novel, I think, you know, that this woman doesn't have very much. You know, she's downwardly mobile. She's taken care of her aunt for many years, who was awful to her. Um, she's been left with this very paltry inheritance, which she's desperately trying to subsist on. Um, she's... She's an alcoholic, which has led her to losing some of her pupils, you know, that she teaches piano to and all the rest. So she has very little in her life. And one of the few things she does have is her faith. So to see that that process of her losing her faith um, is, is really devastating, I think. And part of what precipitates her crisis, I suppose, is uh, one of the priests that's portrayed in the novel, Father Quigley. Um, he's portrayed as a fire and brimstone preacher, and he has this great fulmination uh, in in a censorship sense. He's telling everyone to stop watching dirty films and spending their time going to the movies, and uh, which is very funny because then the main characters go to the movies almost straight away after listening to the to the, the sermon. But he is also he has a a moment in the confessional with Judith, and. He's really dismissive and totally careless of, he just thinks, oh, another one of these awful spinster ones come to, you know, bend my ear, uh, which is actually his job. But Mm. as it unfolded, I thought that Moore was saying the clergy were not just inadequate, but I think he was putting them out as ineffectual and powerless. Yeah, so this is one of Moore's many... (laughs) um, uh, critical, let's say, representations of the Catholic ch- uh, clergy. Um, he, th- he is an awful character. Um, and then there's a scene, I think, later in the novel where he's we, where we see him seated, um, you know, in the in the uh, in his home. And then Judith comes in and disturbs him at home, you know, which is even worse uh, uh, that she that she rocks up to his house. Um, and he's kind of sitting around, you know, assessing um, 
the all the money that's been quote unquote raised for the black babies, you know, and all this sort of stuff. So um in Moore's work, um priests are often represented as as um as uh ambitious, you know, of really wanting to progress within the Catholic Church. And there's a in the second novel, so um the one that follows uh Judith Hearn, the Feast of Luppercal, it's also set in Belfast and it's set in a school that's very much like the school Moore went to himself, St. Malachy's in North Belfast. And um there's there's any number of <laughs> awful priests in that novel, but the the main one being one who's who's really desperate to kind of uh, insinuate his way up the ranks of the church and impress his superiors and all the rest of it. So I think, um, yeah, more um, in some ways, I think the, the the representations of the clergy in these early novels are are somewhat simplistic. Um, I think his his representations of Catholic clergy become more nuanced as his career goes on. Um, but this particular priest, we do have hints of there being a more sympathetic priest in Judith's past, don't we? So he's he's passed away, unfortunately, but she does kind of say, oh, I used to have this confessor and I'd go to see him. And he, I think he, it seems like he used to be quite understanding, but this Father Quigley is absolutely awful. Yes, yeah, there is, uh, yeah, he's her new confessor, isn't he? Because she's moved parish as well. Yes. Um, so she's not only, uh, she's moving around between these boarding houses, but obviously the loss of that, priest is quite important for her because he was obviously her confessor for a long time. And I thought that was interesting comment on those kind of personal relationships that people can have within a devotional structure as well, that perhaps we don't really think about when we think about going to church, but that people would seek individual confessors as well. Just, you know, just kind of interesting in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, what you said about cinema, I also think is really interesting. You know, the priest basically saying a church is not a cinema, i.e. You, you should be coming to church to to devote yourself to God and to praise God and all of that. And whereas what you're really doing is going off to the cinema and worshipping Hollywood cinema, Hollywood films. And that is something that recurs in more, I think, the the idea of cinema as a kind of um, almost like a, a space that creates illusory worlds, much like religion does, as far as he's concerned. <laughs> you know, so if you have a religious worldview, you're somehow deluding yourself in much the same way as when you enter a cinema, you enter into a kind of illusory world that recurs in his work, actually. Uh, so it's interesting that it's there early on. Yes. Yeah. Well, we have to really talk about the alcoholism um, because it's just so important to the story. Judith is addicted to drink. And I mean, there are a lot of alcoholics in literature, you know, it's not an uncommon uh, exploration. But I was really surprised in this. I didn't kind of condemn her for drinking. I thought it was a rational response to her situation, almost, almost empowering. Um, when she first breaks open her stash of booze, which took me completely by surprise. I had no idea that was going to happen. I was like, where? What? Oh, okay. And the chapter ends with the line, warmed and relaxed, her one and only mistress, she reached for and poured a tumbler full of drink. And I just thought that was a remarkable line to conclude. I mean, she's she's going on a bender at this point. We know, we know in the next chapter that that's what happens. But I just thought he made her her search for comfort in alcohol so relatable. I mean, how did you feel about the way alcoholism was represented? 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I also think that it's a very memorable representation of alcoholism, you know, in a kind of, you know, because there's so many stereotypes around um, alcohol abuse, you know, the, the wino in the street, which is, you know, and that's, you know, how many of these are going to be kind of male stereotypes, you know, the wino in the street, the, um, the kind of bohemian, you know, artist type. I mean, I last week just read um, Anthony Cronin's memoir, Dead as Doornails. And the amount of drinking that is recounted in that book where he's, he basically, he, you know, he devotes a whole section to Brendan Behan, then another whole section to Patrick Kavanagh. And then he gets on to Flann O'Brien and he said, to be honest with you, you know, Behan and Kavanagh weren't alcoholics at all compared to Flann O'Brien. And you're just like, what? This book is awash with, with alcohol. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of different types. But th- this, again, I think because it's a, a woman, a single woman um, for whom it really the only socially acceptable form of drinking probably would have been that sherry with a Sunday, you know, with a Sunday cup of tea. And so it it just makes it all the more poignant, I suppose, that it's that it's the the clandestine nature of it. The fact she has to go and get a bus out to Bally Macarrot to to buy a, a bottle of whiskey and she's ripped off for it as well. They try to overcharge her. But she's, you know, because she's a a woman, a single woman of a certain age, it's even more socially unacceptable. And I think he writes that really sensitively. He does. He almost, like that first time she drinks, it's almost sensual. You know, it's it's a really elaborate ritual that she goes through and prepares and everything. There are none of the ways that she's a failing mother or any of those things because she drinks, which is something that you would be familiar you know, with in many novels. So it's a really intriguing way now, it, it obviously, it, it doesn't stay sensual and nice and just drinking whiskey because it all degenerates after that. But it was an interesting, I thought, and powerful kind of opening to her drinking. Well, it's a form of consolation, isn't it? In a in a situation where she, she 
doesn't have many. <laughs> yeah. There are not many things in her life which console her. And, and clearly this does. Do you think you would recommend the novel? And how does it compare, I suppose, to more of his other works? You said he wrote 19 or 20 and that they're all very varied. How does this novel compare to, say, his genre fiction? So he wrote several uh, kind of um, potboiler mystery type things uh, in this period uh, early on in his career. And in fact, he probably would have said that writing those novels facilitated the writing of, of, of Judith Hearn because he was able to make the money to support himself and his family and all the rest of it. So his uh, his um, early novels, I've only read one of the pot boilers, The Executioners, which is set in Montreal. It's kind of a Cold War kind of spy narrative. It's almost impossible to get hold of them because he suppressed them himself in the sense that he didn't want them to be reread. They were published by pulp uh, presses in Canada and the US, and they sold huge numbers of copies. But he didn't really... Um, he was he referred to them as kind of hack work. He didn't think that they were uh, he didn't want them as part of his kind of serious oeuvre. And as a result, they've never been reprinted or republished and they're almost impossible to get hold of. But some of his um, some of the aspects of writing those novels, I think, do make their way inevitably. Like there isn't a clear demarcation between the pulp novels and the serious novels. I mean, he's a very economical writer. He writes short novels he um, took perhaps a kind of journalistic approach to the writing of his fiction, both the pop, the pulp novels and the non-pulp novels. You know, he's a very precise um, writer, um, sparse, economical, you know, doesn't doesn't go to town on description or lengthy. You know, there is nothing kind of excessive in his prose style. And in some of the later novels, he went back to some of the the mystery kind of thriller aspects, you know. So um, he wrote a novel called The Colour of Blood, um, which is set in an unnamed um, kind of Iron Curtain country, probably Poland, in the 80s. And then he wrote a, a Troubles thriller in the 90s called Lies of Silence. So some of the thriller stuff resurfaces, I think, in his later novels. These early ones... Um, the first two, at least, Judith Hearn and, and The Feast of Lupercal, are both set in Belfast and they make a good kind of companion. They make it good companions for each other because The Feast of Lupercal is about a 37-year-old um, teacher who's um, a male teacher at this boys' school and he's a virgin. And so it's kind of about, really, I suppose, <laughs> Belfast as this place that um, the kind of fosters stagnancy of all sorts, artistic stagnancy, uh, sexual stagnancy, just a place where you just cannot progress, you know, where you're stuck. Um, and there's a lot of that in Judith Hearn as well, I think. But why would I recommend it? It is a bleak novel. I'm not going to lie to your listeners. It is a bleak novel. But I think it's a really interesting portrait of Belfast before the Troubles. I think that if you think about representations of Belfast in literature for over the past 75 years, obviously the Troubles looms really large and it's difficult almost to think about a, a pre-Troubles Belfast. But this novel shows us that Belfast and it also shows us, which is something that he was very interested in, it shows us how long-standing sectarian, sectarianism was in Belfast kind of before the Troubles. You know, there's those conversations that they have over breakfast about, you know, 
who's worse, Hitler or the Russians? And, you know, Mrs. Henry Rice says, well, I mean, the crowd that rule us, the British are worse than the pair of them. You know, so there's this kind of knee jerk sectarianism that Moore hated. He he wrote a piece in 1970 reflecting about his childhood in Belfast, where he talked about his father chastising his mother for getting buying bread from a Protestant bakery um, instead of a Catholic bakery. So he really hated that. And I do think that that kind of knee-jerk sectarianism comes through in the novel and is a good kind of prehistory to the troubles. So I'd read it for that reason, and I'd read it for its its portrait of a of a woman's interiority. Um, I think it's a very empathetic and moving, um, you know, representation of a of a middle aged single woman. I think it's really very very compelling and surprisingly full of suspense actually there's quite a lot of tension in the novel even though if you describe the storyline you wouldn't think so and I think that's a a tribute to the way that he was able to write that he could generate that kind of tension within a within a book where there isn't a lot of dramatic you know plot points there's not a lot of big things happen apart from the, the breakdown in the church but yeah I mean I would definitely recommend anyone to read it I think it's great and I'm very glad I got to read it for the podcast. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I hope that more readers will discover it as a result of this podcast. Yes, and it is widely available, unlike a lot of the other ones. You will be able to find it easily enough. But we will, I think, just double check how rude it is with censorship bingo. Oh, yes, of course. Now, I think it it probably doesn't really tick a lot of the boxes, but you never know. We can only try. <laughs> And it is the 50s when they were banning. Yeah, the 50s, they were banning so much at this point that really anything could get could get banned. So we will start with breasts. Well, yes, there is a mention of Mary being half naked, so we can definitely take that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, he didn't dwell on it too much. Then bestiality. Well, no, definitely not. No, no, not that I recall anyway. Sex work. I Yes, yes, of course. The brothel, yes. The brothel owner wanting to beautify the church. With the wages of sin, yes. <laughs> she can't have been the only one, in fairness. <laughs> right, we can take that. Um, racism was, I mean, there was sectarianism and there was a lot of hyper-nationalism, but I don't notice any sect- any racism. This isn't, you know, just to be clear, I don't think I'm saying that this is a racist novel. I'm not. But Mm -hmm. um, I think there is a racist discussion that happens in the novel, uh, which is um, when James is at the pub with the major Mahaffey, uh, whatever his name is, and they start he starts talking about going off to Jamaica or the West Indies. And there's a whole series of quite problematic uh, yeah, racist tropes in that discussion, but it's it's. I wouldn't say it's a major aspect of the novel, no. No, but I suppose we we could take it for the the bingo in this sense. Um, although not in any way is more on the side of the the racists in the pub. No, not at all. Next up, drugs. Well, apart from drink, I didn't notice anything. No, no, alcohol is the main drug in this novel, definitely. Definitely. But unfortunately, it's it's such a common drug in so many novels, it doesn't even count as bannable in that context. And politics. Well, there is politics, isn't there? There's a lot of politics. You know, there's there's those discussions of the Cold War over breakfast, you know, and 
the godless Russians and Hitler being worse or who's worse. And, you know, um, and there's some discussion about the six counties as well. So, yeah, there's there's politics in the novel, I would say. Yeah, I think we could take that. Uh, the next one is swearing. But I don't think anybody used coarse language, even at moments of extremists. I don't recall any, I have to say. No, no, no I think they're they're all very middle class and nice. Um, infidelity. Um, not really. No, no, I can't recall infidelity either. No, no, because James Madden is widowed and his sexual indiscretions seem to be confined to his widowed period. I don't think so. And crime. Well, yes, yes, there is the sexual assault. And I think in a way, the way that she buys the alcohol is really framed as a criminal act, isn't it? It is, yeah, the way that the clandestine, I don't really know what the laws and regulations were around the purchase of alcohol in Belfast in the 50s, but but there, it's strongly implied that she's having to do it. She's she's buying it from a kind of a, a hutch around the back of a pub or something like that. Yeah, it's, it is implied that it's illegal. Yes, I'm, yeah, like you say, it's it's probably hard to pin down exactly why, but there is a sense that that off-licence purchase isn't just a social disgrace, but something that you could actually go to jail for. Yeah. And next one, genitalia. No, not that explicit at all. No. Abortion. No. 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 Well, it was illegal anyway, but there's no mention of it one way or the other. Orgies. Uh, No. (laughs) No. (laughs) In a boarding house. No. (laughs) No, that would be a different kind of novel. <laughs> be more about how that woman made her money for the altar rails. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Next up, sexual assault. Well, yes. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Unfortunately. And for all that it isn't graphic, it is it is really really disturbing. It is, yeah. Um and then there is extramarital pregnancy. Well, luckily enough it seems that Mary doesn't get pregnant. Yeah, I don't think that there is any mention of that in the novel. No. Uh, masturbation? No. <laughs> no. Although there's a kind of a hint of it, I think. You know, there's um, when she's reflecting early on about maybe some of the things that she's, you know, if God doesn't exist, then I've missed out on certain things. And then there's a kind of a hint that perhaps masturbation is one of those things she has missed out on <laughs> because because she's believed in God. And what if what if he doesn't exist? Um, so it, there is. And I think it might even be that's another one of those scenes where it's related to an illicit book. She talks about a book from Paris. And, you know, there's a kind of there's a hint of perhaps, you know, yeah. there be, it being an erotically charged book. And if she hadn't been so devout, maybe <laughs> maybe masturbation might have happened. Hmm. Could we take it for that? A sort of a masturbatory regret? I think yes. I think she's having regrets at that at that moment. Yes. Yeah, we'll take that. Great. Sex toys. Well, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wouldn't even probably know what they were. No. Feminism. Well, I would say not explicitly. I mean, it's not dealing with those sorts of politicised ways of talking about gender. But it is very much a study of you know, a certain type of femininity and the box in which those women were living and how that was so restrictive. Yeah, I think it's a very effective portrait of a a woman with very little 
means very little training to support herself. I think we, we, you know, we learned that she was taking up some sort of um, clerical job and then her aunt, you know, insisted, got ill and insisted on her looking after. And so she never managed to kind of, you know, the only kind of paid work she's able to do is teaching piano, um, which is one of those very almost 19th century jobs for you know it's it's you're not going to make much money out of that and of course she starts to lose her pupils as well so it's um there's something very much a kind of throwback about judith like she belongs in the 19th century you know she's a refugee from the 19th century almost and her Mm. yeah so her world is very restricted and i think he does do a good job of of representing that yeah yeah i think we could take it for that in offering sympathy to I mean, sometimes she seems like a governess or like yeah. a, or like a nanny who's been cast out, you know, I like you say. Displaced, yeah, displaced from a 19th century novel almost. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And I think that must also have been true as well, you know, of people who lived long lives and who started off in one social milieu and were downwardly mobile and had no skills. I mean, there must have been a fair amount of gentility poverty traps out there for people. Yeah, and I wonder as well, going back to the boarding house idea, whether that that that's a very useful space to think through the the downwardly mobile woman. Because I know Mary Lavin has an early short story called Miss Holland, which is about exactly the same, not the, not the same thing. It's not about an alcoholic woman in a boarding house in Belfast, but it's about a downwardly mobile, formerly um, you know quite well healed woman whose father dies and she doesn't really have anything and she ends up in a boarding house. And it's, it's you know, so I think that the boarding house space can be quite useful for thinking through those kinds of, you know, where do these women go? Yeah. And they, they were kind of invisible and they're, they're not considered a social problem in the way that, say, young working class women are because, you know, they're working in mixed spaces. And so they kind of, they don't get a lot of cultural attention, I think, and they don't have moral panics around their behavior or anything. But I think Moore shows that they are nonetheless experiencing all of the traps of the misogynistic patriarchal society, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think we could take that. Yeah, I agree. Divorce. Well, no, I don't think so. No, I don't. I mean, sure, hardly anyone in the book is actually married. Everybody seems to be a widower or a widower who was married. Yeah, there's. that's true. I mean, James Madden's daughter is married, but... Um, all we learn about that is that she apparently had premarital sex, which he's obsessed with for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, very few marriages. You're right in the novel. Yeah, we can't take that one. I'm afraid contraception. No, no. Menstruation. No, didn't not even a hint. Did you get one? Oh yeah, there is. There's a bit where um, after one of her um, binge evenings in the first, I think after the first one, so. She gets thrown out after the second one. But um, after the first one, when she's, um, you know, trying to leave the boarding house and she's a bit of ashamed of herself, um, her landlady asks her if she's OK. And she's trying to hide the fact that she's been drinking and she implies it's because of she's out of sorts because she's on her period. Yeah. So ah. the, it's not of course, it's not articulated, but it, it is. We know that that's what's being discussed so mrs henry rice is sympathetic then oh all the things we poor women have to put up with and that sort of thing so it's it's clear that that's what's being suggested oh well that's good enough we can definitely take that (laughs) (laughs) then blasphemy well i think the way that the the priest is treated 
obviously would be upsetting for the censors, but a woman trying to open the tabernacle is, I mean, that's that's the desecration of the sacred space. That's as blasphemous as you get, really. That's right. Yeah. And we, you know, even before she has that massive crisis, she's already thinking thoughts that she herself knows are blasphemous. You know, she's she's fully aware that even having the thoughts that she's having is is blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It plays a really significant part in in her character and her relationship with her faith. So we can definitely take that one. Uh, oral sex. No, no. <laughs> and next up, graphic violence. Well, like the assault, it, it is written in a way that I, I felt it's violence very much. It's it's a very distressing scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think even though it isn't perhaps what you might consider graphic violence, I think that that sort of violence is what the censors were objecting to. They objected to these portrayals, these realistic portrayals of mm. violent interactions between people. So I think we could take that. Yeah, I agree. And finally, queer content. I didn't notice anything. No. No, nothing in this one. That's quite a few, though, isn't it? <laughs> that is quite a few. Let me count. Ten. Ten out of 25. That isn't bad at all, because I was thinking it would be more around the six. Yeah, it's got its little subtle, subtle allusions to things like, as I say, menstruation and uh, and one or two other things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fair dues, apart from the the blasphemy, which would have been enough on its own to get a banned, I think. Even if Moore had left out the sexual assault, I think all of that stuff about her doubts, it would have been banned for that alone. Yeah, I agree with that completely. That's the scene Yeah, in the church is so disturbing. That would have been enough, I'd say. Well, thank you so much, Sinead. I really enjoyed this. It was a great chat and I loved reading more. Oh, great. Well, I'm so glad you did. And thanks so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. So if you want unexpectedly transgressive storylines, read a bit of more. The great thing is how short and punchy this novel is. If you fancy a quick read, he's your man. Next time, I'll be reading an author most famous for his short stories, William Somerset Maugham. There were a few volumes in my mother's bookcase, but I never took the opportunity to borrow them. But it was one of his novels, Cakes and Ale, that fell foul of the Irish censors in the first year of the very first censorship board. I have no idea what to expect from that particular title, but I am intrigued. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.